You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. On today's episode, we'll listen in to a conversation Tom had with Marie Yadida, a former tech exec who is an advocate for student agency. Marie was a former vice president for Chipmaker Qualcomm and is a 25-year veteran of high-tech and wireless communication. She's pioneered new management strategies leading a design center for Qualcomm and has a unique appreciation for jobs of the future. We appreciate Marie's focus on student agency. In this discussion, you'll hear Marie describe the skills that will be important in five years and what schools should do about it today. All right, Marie Yadada, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you. You have a Swedish last name. I do. And uh, you you emigrated from Sweden when you were a young girl. I, I did. So I've mostly grown up here in the United States. Uh, why did your dad choose to move? Uh, he was a an RF engineer, which if you know in engineering is something akin to black magic. And he got a position with uh, General Dynamics in New York. So you come by your your tech instincts um, honestly, right? I do indeed. <laughs> You're the president of agentic learning, and and uh, that's a hint that we're going to talk about student agency today. Since you left the tech field, you've been doing work for the, the one-to-one institute and for COSIN. That's the uh, Association of, of School uh, Ed Tech Directors. Yes. Um, but. Also important, you're an active parent of uh, two teenagers. I am. Uh, so uh, I do a lot of work with, uh, with, with different organizations on education technology in all of its different forms. Um, but a lot of my insights have come from trying to get my kids the kind of education I believe that every child deserves. And as a result, they have been public schooled and private schooled, homeschooled, free and democratic schooled, Montessori schooled. And the only reason they haven't been charter schooled is we didn't win the lottery. Uh, Marie, you and I have interacted for more than 10 years, um, many times a year in person and online. And so I, I deeply appreciate your, your tech background, but also um, the education journey that you've been on. I, I, want, I want to go back to Qualcomm. Um, you, you were an executive at a chip maker, uh, I guess when it was, it was relatively unusual for a woman to be an exec in tech. Yes, that, that, that's right. I was uh, vice president of engineering and became the vice president and general manager for Qualcomm's Portland Design Center of Excellence up here in Portland. So how did that happen? I mean, what's the, uh, the short story? Well, the short story is that I joined when there were only 50 people in the, in the organization. Uh, and what happened is that I had skills that weren't very common among technical folks. And as a result, I was able to bring a lot of uh, value to management and not just to technology. So what, uh, what kind of skills did that include? 
Um, so back when I started, which was in the 1980s, the thing that was highly prized and highly recognized by everybody was the pure technical skills, the pure job skills. So the kind of thing that you learn in college, plus the kind of thing you get by tinkering around at home and being obsessed and reading all the articles and playing with technology and so on. Uh, so maturity and insight for technical skills really was the gold standard for hiring people, for promoting people and so on. Uh, however, as the organization began to, to grow and I, and I grew along with it, we started really needing additional skills, what they call soft skills or 21st century skills and so forth. And so uh, Tony Wagner has a great list. Uh, P21 has a great list. I think the four C's captures it pretty effectively when you talk about collaboration, critical thinking, creativity, and communication. The ability to really work well with others and to make others more productive and effective uh, just by your, by your presence and the, and the things that you do. So that was a big differentiator for me. Was it difficult being um, one of the few women uh, managers and then execs in tech? Uh, in some ways it was, in some ways it wasn't. I had, uh, I worked with some really awesome people who, um, really were truly gender blind in the, in the way that we want to look at, look at those things today. But still, I think what you find is that as a woman, I had a different perspective on things. Uh, I think a valuable perspective on things, but it was one that kind of got filtered out by some of my male colleagues because it wasn't part of their framework, part of their worldview. And so, uh, a lot of the work that I did was invisible to them and, and hard for them to understand. And I think hard for them to see why I was getting the results I was. As you think about the skills that were really important in your career, um, what was important to their development? Did you just come to the work with those skills? Were they things that you developed on the job? Were mentors important? What What was the key? I think that the key for me was um, the ability, the self-awareness, the ability to assess where what I was doing well and what I wasn't doing well, and then the perseverance to just constantly keep getting better no matter what. Uh, and sometimes I would do that with the help of colleagues. I would do it with the help of mentors. I would do it by really reading a lot of management books and understanding what the latest thinking was in, in, in those areas uh, and developing a, you know, a pretty good portfolio of techniques and approaches. Um, one of the things that I discovered back around the 2003 or so uh, was this was before Dan Pink uh, published his wonderful book, Drive, on motivation. But there was research that preceded that. And so being able to tap into that research and take advantage of that and apply it in my role as uh, uh, general manager of our design center really allowed me to act as a practitioner of building self-organizing teams, building organizations with distributed leadership, uh, building teams that really did not spend time on politics, but spent times, uh, spent time on strategic questions and implementation of our, of our projects. Ah, that's, uh, that's a key insight. And we're going to come back and talk about that. Um, so even before you left Qualcomm, you, you became interested in, in human development and education more specifically, and you, you led many of the education efforts at Qualcomm. 
what was the what precipitated that interest in in learning and development? Well, there were two things that happened. One is that Clay Christensen and Michael Horn published um, Disrupting Class. And the other is, is that my, uh, my kids were starting to enter school. And so those things together really got me thinking about what is the role, the appropriate role of technology, particularly mobile technology in education? And back then, that was not a mainstream thing. It was uh, not something that schools would even consider. People found it very, very foreign. But I found it very compelling. And so um, I spent a lot of time uh, I, working with uh, our corporate um, social responsibility organization to really help create a portfolio of grants and so on that would move that needle forward. Let's uh, fast forward. You and I have both spent the last uh, two years, both formally and informally, thinking about the future, um, thinking hard about the, how to prepare young people, our own, uh, our own families and others. And, what kind of advice do you give to your teenagers? What skills will be priorities as they enter the workforce? Well, I'll tell you, um, it's not so much about the telling them as the showing them. And so what I believe they need when they enter the workforce is the sense of agency, the sense of being able to affect their future and affect what's around them and to always feel um, respected and that if they're not being respected, that that feels weird and strange and wrong, uh, not something that you just accept. And so uh, since they were babies, I've really worked on treating them as individuals who have the same, uh, whose wants, even though they may seem silly to an adult, have the same value as the wants of adults and whose needs, of course, supersede anything else that's, uh, that, that's going on. Because I want them to grow up and go out into the world with the feeling of, I have agency, I deserve respect, I can solve problems, I can affect what's going on around me, uh, I can make good decisions, all of that. Has that always been important? Or do you, why is agency important today? Why will agency be more important five years from now? Well, I'll tell you, when I was working uh, with, with Qualcomm, so uh, we, we really did a kind of model what does the future of work look like in, in my organization. Um, and we had levels of table stakes of what's, what do you need to be successful. So in order to work at Qualcomm and be successful, you had to have great technical skills. Whatever you're working, if you're a program manager or an engineer or a tech writer, you needed to have excellent skills in that area in order to you know, even be considered for any position. So that, that was table stakes. In order to work in our design center, we had a level of requirements above that, which is that in addition to having great technical skills, you also needed to have these soft skills, the collaboration, the ability to work with people and so on. But there was another tier of those people who were the most successful, those who were the most valuable, and those were the ones who didn't sit around and wait to be told what to do, but who had taken the time and the initiative to really understand you know, deeply, authentically, the goals of the organization and to move the ball forward for those goals without being handheld and without being told what to do. And I have to tell you that working in a team of folks that's working that way 
is an absolute delight. It improves the quality of uh, life at work by you know, orders of magnitude. And so one of the side effects that came out of that being a requirement is that there was very, very high job satisfaction among the people who were able to participate in that kind of um in that kind of work. And the thing that distinguished them from their peers was agency. And I believe that that in the future of work where it's where everybody constantly has to prove themselves, there is no getting a job and security for life, that those folks who have agency today are the ones who are differentiating. But pretty soon that's going to become table stakes too. And then anyone who doesn't have it is going to be at a serious disadvantage in being able to be competitive in the global economy. Marie, when I um, was an engineer 40 years ago, I think most of the projects that I managed were technical in nature. They, it was really a matter of applying best practices to a known problem and then managing to a quality solution. I think more and more, and this is particularly in true in tech, uh, the sort of environment that you were in, the problems are more and more adaptive that where we don't know the answer to them and where we more frequently have to apply design skills. And, and to the extent that that's true, it strikes me that agency is more important than ever of being both confident but mindful in the face of big, complicated challenges. Does that ring true? Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I would say that it used to be that people had their defined roles and they did those. Um, but now everyone, in order for organizations to be nimble, to not have these very cumbersome top-down types of management structures that really force every decision to go through the top and then, and then trickle down, that's not uh, efficient. It's not effective. And the organizations that don't do that are going to have a huge competitive advantage compared to those who do. And as a result, people in those organizations need to not just be mindful of their little box, they need to understand their box as part of a system and understand how what they do affects other people in other parts of the organization. Right. So for example, as an engineer, you're no longer given a requirements document that says make it do this, this, and this, because that's, that's easy, right? That just requires your technical skills. But you need to understand why those requirements were created and to be able to offer feedback so you can put in technical uh, insight into that discussion and actually make sure that you're building the right thing instead of building the defined thing right. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast today. We're listening in to a conversation with Tom and Marie Yadida around student agency and what schools can do to plan for the skills that will be necessary for students to have mastered in five years. If you're enjoying this conversation and want to learn more, check out What is Agentic Learning and Why is it Important, a blog written by Marie and Michael Hilniak that shares how pedagogical approaches, when implemented well, lead to engagement and intrinsic motivation, thus creating opportunities for students to develop agency. Don't have a pen? No worries. We'll include it in the show notes as well as on our blog post at gettingsmart.com. Now, back to Tom and Marie. All right, let's talk about uh, education. I think it's fair to say that we, we, we both believe that constructing experiences that 
help students develop this sense of agency is really important. Uh, you, you've argued that, um, uh, or, or more specifically, you, you have observed that many times when these high engagement, high agency learning initiatives are launched, that they're, they're often not as successful as hoped. Why is that? What are the problems? Sure. Um, there are a lot of things that can, that can get in the way. But I think the most fundamental one is that there is a very important and subtle and hard to define and hard to measure m- mindset shift that every adult in the system needs to be able to make. And it's, it's a shift from, well, a lot of people talk about the teachers shifting from being a um, sage on the stage to being a uh, guide on the side. And that's, that's definitely a part of it. It's being stepping back from teachers being in control and delivering content to teachers being allowing students to own their own learning and guiding them through uh, the process of gaining that content knowledge. In what ways are typical district initiatives to launch project-based learning or inquiry-based learning Uh, Where do they fall short? Sure. So let's say you're starting a project-based learning uh, initiative. And so you're a teacher of some fourth graders and you want them to, uh, you you decide that they're going to be able to learn uh, math and collaboration and uh, various kinds of uh, project skills and empathy for the customer and so on by designing a new playground for the kindergartners. And so that's the driving question is, what's the best playground we can create for the kindergartners here? And so the kindergartners might ask something silly like, uh, can we put in a pool? But in, in so in a, um, if, if all you're doing is doing projects and not doing real project-based learning, the teacher then takes control right there and answers the question and says, no, that can't happen. That's, that's too expensive and there's all these other problems. In a project-based learning initiative, the teacher would say something like, well, do we have room for it and can we afford it? And that gives the students the momentum to go off and try to identify what, what are some of the, what are some of the other things that happen? Now, probably these kids will come to the conclusion that no, there isn't room for it. No, we can't afford it. But they may end up uh, going for saying, well, maybe it's possible. And so then they start looking into insurance and liability and, and so on. And possibly the project even turns into a fundraiser to put in a pool uh, in, the, in the kindergarten playground. Um, that's an unlikely outcome. But the fact that that kind of an outcome is a possibility is a hallmark of authentic project-based learning rather than uh, a co-opting of project-based learning back to traditional teaching by the teacher taking more control. It sounds like a, a series of subtle shifts or the difference between just a set of activities that are sort of low level and um, a set of experiences that really do produce um, the the muscles for the um, the, the new century. Um, You've argued that it's key to start by developing teacher agency. Um, why is that? I don't believe that teachers can foster something that they've never felt, that they've never experienced, that they don't know uh, what it's like. For those of us who 
have had the privilege of really experiencing true agency, we know that it leads to higher job satisfaction, that it leads to better outcomes, that we become more capable in doing our jobs when we are able to engage that sense of agency. Teachers don't know that. And they are under a tremendous amount of pressure to increase test scores and no, really not much else uh, a lot of the time, at least not um, to the same degree. And so their minds are really focused on the wrong problem. And so they will tend to fall back to what feel like comfortable approaches, things that involve teaching to the test, things that are inside their comfort zone, and that really involves teaching the way they've always taught. Letting go and moving to one of these, what I call uh, agentic pedagogies, uh, pedagogies that support student agency and project-based learning and inquiry are some of those. Um, in order to do that, they have to take a tremendous leap of faith. And that's an extremely difficult thing to do. Uh, and it's very difficult to do correctly to know if you've succeeded if it's not something you felt and experienced for yourself. Um, to, to what extent, I'm, I'm just thinking about the leap of faith. When you, when you think about that, to what extent should we remain devoted to a handful of identified um, outcomes? Or, and to what extent should we be open to a set of new possibilities? How, how do you think about teachers balancing well, let me draw the analogy uh, back to when I was working at Qualcomm. Uh, traditional uh, performance reviews were purely technical. You know, how well do you write code? How well do you do design? How, you know, how, how uh, elegant are your solutions? And um, we ended up shifting that and really strongly shifting that in the Portland Design Center. And what we did, we started looking at things like judgment and helpfulness and things that you can't even put into a formal review, but that really were the key drivers of the success of these folks who are making such an impact uh, on our organization. And so in order to make that um, official, since those aren't things that you can really uh, measure, and so they're not things you can put into an HR form, we would do every performance review, we would do two things. We would do the traditional HR uh, performance review, and then we would do a coaching review where we looked at these things that are real differentiators and coached people in and how to do that more effectively. So I think when you start, you'll go back and look at what are the outcomes you're looking at in school, then test scores are kind of like those traditional technical um, skills. They are absolutely table stakes. They're very important. You want to know that that's happening. But if that's the only thing you're looking at, people aren't going to get better. People aren't going to improve. In order to improve, you need to pull in these other um, dispositions and skills that drive deeper learning, that drive uh, intrinsic motivation, that, uh, that drive all the things that get people working at their peak performance rather than at either, you know, all you need to do to get an A or the best you can do given the circumstances or a complete lack of engagement uh, that we see in so many students. Since you have uh, some teenagers, uh, how would you describe what uh, what kind of a mixture of ideal um, high school um, learning experiences would be? Well, I think that the ideal of high school would have a lot of 
options for students for how they learn and what they learn. And so I would like to see them able to choose an area of specialization, whether it be dance or computer science or making or uh, science or language, whatever it is that is their passion, that they get to spend a lot of time on that and really go in deep and learn the soft skills and learn agency as a side effect of doing that work in a meaningful way. For things that are um, uh, academic skills and academic knowledge that they also need to have, I want them to have a lot of different ways to learn things. So rather than sitting in lectures, I would like them to be able to participate in uh, seminars, in Socratic seminars, in uh, small group instruction, in one-on-one tutoring, and of course, to be able to take advantage of technology to work through uh, self-paced adaptive software to learn content uh, and to have that be a mix of things that they can choose. They can sign up for uh, mentorship with another student or with a teacher. They can sign up to spend three hours uh, working on um, Alex, the math software that is adaptive and is is very high quality. Um, And so that both of those elements, the working deeply and seriously in an area where they have a an interest, as well as having lots of different ways to uh, to gain uh, academic knowledge that is intrinsically motivated, that uh, does lead to student agency, that all of those are available to them. So let's talk about um, building organizations that support these kinds of experiences. In education, uh, I'm afraid we we see either top-down organizations that feel highly repressive for teachers or completely decentralized organizations where teachers are on their own. And I'm, I'm struck that, um, that personalized and, and particularly competency-based learning really require groups of adults to work in concert in rather sophisticated ways to support these individual learning trajectories for students. So how do we construct organizations that uh, where teachers don't either feel, you know, completely repressed or completely abandoned. What's the alternative? So the alternative to uh, top-down uh, organizations is self-organizing teams, which is the model that I was using um, in my work in my work at Qualcomm. Uh, people are not left on their own. People are collaborating with others, and the thing is, is that different people have different strengths. And so if you put teams together of folks who have different strengths, then they're able to support each other in getting something done at a much higher level than if everybody is responsible for doing uh, everything. And so, so the trick is to have a lot of collaborative work at each level. So teachers collaborate with each other, uh, principals collaborate with each other. I mean, ideally superintendents collaborate with each other, right? Um, but that you also... And that you remove this, these very rigid, inefficient um, structures that are top down, that are command and control, and instead replace them with uh, self-organizing teams. Now, in order to do that, you have to make sure that everybody in the organization has a very clear, clear understanding of what the vision is, that they're not just bought into the vision, but they own the vision. 
and that they understand what kinds of outcomes bring you closer to the vision and take you farther away from them. Those are the conditions that are required for agency. And when where everyone is able to act with agency because they they can try things, they can look at how do I go out of the box to make this better or that better? How do I improve my teaching practice? If you can uh, try that and then evaluate the results, and have the good judgment to know whether you're actually moving the goal closer to the vision or farther away, then you can adapt your behavior, iterate on what you're doing, and um, much more rapidly uh, move closer to that goal. This sounds like a series of changes that might take a decade to put in place in a a medium-sized district or network, do you have any uh, suggestions for um, how to do this in a, in a sustainable way uh, that is less um, likely to uh, go away with a change in a school board or a, a superintendent? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so many uh, initiatives depend on a charismatic leader. And one of the things that I am most proud about of my work in industry is that I was constantly working to make myself obsolete. And the way that you do that is by creating a culture, a culture that embodies the things that you really want to be able to see. And so in this case, you would want for education, you want a culture of continual improvement. You want a culture of agency. You want a culture of self-organizing teams and distributed leadership. And so how do you achieve that kind of culture change? Well, you can't do it top down by telling teachers, you are now uh, in charge of your own destiny, uh, go. That's leaving them without support. That's the same thing as empowering someone to drive a 747 without giving them any uh, professional development, if you will, on, on, on how to fly. Um, and so what you need to have is organizational processes and structures that support self-organizing teams. And one in particular that I like is this notion of a formal improvement process that happens at the teacher level, that happens at the principal level, and that happens at the cabinet level. And it's very important at the teacher level. And what it would look like is, first of all, you give teachers the professional development to be able to be effective using these new agentic pedagogies and agentic approaches. But you don't legislate how they're going to implement them. Instead, what you do is you teach, uh, give teachers the opportunity to choose what they want to try next. What do they think is going to create more agency? What is going to move them closer to the goals? To try that in the classroom and then to come back and reflect with other, with their peers, with other teachers about what went well, what didn't go well. Uh, how do you, uh, how to make, this better and then either improve on that experiment or if that experiment was helpful, you just incorporate it and you, and you try something new. A great example of this uh, occurred at a school I visited um, where there was a math teacher and he said, well, I want to increase agency and I want to increase self-direction. So I'm going to give my math students the opportunity to work with uh, some adaptive self-paced software. And instead of, you know, making them have one day deadlines, I'm going to give them a two week deadline. And so he did that and he came back and he said, you know, this was the worst test scores I have ever had. And said, wow, 
And he said, but for the kids who took to this, they had the best test scores they've ever had. So there's something to it here. There's something to giving them this power, this uh, ownership that can give them, uh, let them take a giant leap over their previous performance. But I didn't have enough structure in place to make sure that uh, all of the kids were, were getting it and were, um, we're, we're taking we're taking the ownership in the way that they that they needed to, and so that's something I'm going to change next next cycle. So that's a great example, and those are the examples where teachers are exercising agency in order to develop agency for their students. And then, what's necessary support for those teachers is for those successes successes in trying uh, new things. Not that the trial is positive, necessarily has a great outcome, but that the teacher is successfully trying new things and learning from it, that that is recognized by their leadership and by their peers, and that they're able to share those experiences uh, among their peer group. An exciting learning environment and a different way to, uh, to lead an organization. Where can people find more about this? Uh, we have a website at Agentic Learning. It's uh, agenticlearning.org. So Agentic is A-G-E-N-T-I-C, you know, over pertaining to agency and then learning. And you've posted lots of great uh, blogs on gettingsmart.com. So we'll highlight those in the show notes. Thank you. Marie, we really appreciate your leadership around high agency learning. And thanks for sharing uh, the lessons from tech on the Getting Smart podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. A big thanks to Marie for her time talking with Tom. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica signing off. Jessica signing off.